0: Hi, everyone. This is John Mandrola from the Sensible Medicine Podcast, and I'm excited to have my friend and star researcher in the atrial fibrillation space, Dr. Soren Diedrichsen, who is a researcher in Denmark and has been very active in the atrial fibrillation screening space and is actually the second author on the LOOP study, which was published in The Lancet, looking at uh, screening for atrial fibrillation. So Soren, welcome, and thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Uh, I don't know about the STAR thing, but uh, thank you very much for having me. Look forward (laughs) to this.
0: Yeah. Uh, Before we even get started, we should say that Soren is an excellent runner. We ran a 5K together, um, and we were supposed to run together, but there is no way that I could run that pace. So be that it is May. Soren, give us a background on AFib screening, why, why do we want to screen for atrial fibrillation?
1: Yeah, I think uh, for me, the story about AFib screening goes back to uh, almost 10 years ago when I started as a PhD student. Uh, I thought atrial fibrillation screening was a great idea. And we have this notion that AF is associated with increased risk of stroke compared to no AF, about five times higher risk. And those strokes that are associated with AF have worse prognosis. And a lot of people have AF without even knowing it and are just diagnosed uh, by incidence. So back then, I thought it was a great idea to study atrial fibrillation screening because we have a good treatment for atrial fibrillation with anticoagulation to, to sort of mitigate this risk of stroke. And, and you know, then we have these uh, pacemaker cohort studies, uh, assert for instance, but also other cohort studies that taught us that even... Uh, subclinical atrial fibrillation uh, that is definitely asymptomatic is also associated with increased risk of stroke. So this is really uh, you know, an argument that, of course, we should screen for atrial fibrillation to decrease this risk because we're going to find it in a lot of patients that didn't know what they have it. And we're going to uh, be able to uh, treat atrial fibrillation and, and decrease stroke risk with anticoagulation. So uh, I think that's really the background, uh, and and you talked often about the criteria for screening, and uh, by Wilson and Younger back in the sixties, and and inflammation is really a good candidate disease or good candidate condition for for upfront screening to prevent a very important outcome.
0: Right. So it has those. It has many of those criteria, right? It ha- it's an important condition. It can lead to stroke. Picking it up early allows for early treatment that is uh, uh probably reasonable but but there there like wilson and younger said back in the 60s there are snags aren't there yes and actually some
1: of those snags i think already appeared while we were doing the loop uh, trial so maybe i want to just very briefly explain the loop trial and then and then tell about some of those snags please so the loop trial was conducted on the basis of this knowledge that AF is associated with a much higher risk of stroke than no AF, and a lot of people have AF without knowing it. So we took patients that were at least 70 years old and did have risk factors for stroke, but no known AF, and then invited them by old school letter invitation to homes, and then eventually ended up recruiting 6,000 patients in this randomized controlled trial. And these patients that were included where uh, we had 6,000 of those and they were randomized to recorder screening for fibrillation. That was uh, 25% and then 75% randomized to usual care. So that was a one to three randomization. And then those who randomized to recorder the screening, uh, they had a recorder implanted and treated for fibrillation if anything was detected that lasted at least six minutes. And that was uh, the trial that we published a lot of different papers on, about atrial screening, but also on other subjects. And the main outcome of that trial was published two years ago in the Lancet uh, ESC 2021. And I think we should talk about it as a neutral trial. It was, it was uh, there was a signal towards stroke prevention from this rather intensive screening and, and treatment of, of atrial fibrillation that was detected with anticoagulation, but it, it uh, didn't reach uh, statistical significance.
0: Be- before you tell us about that we should just say that we should just say that the group that got the loop recorder had a lot of afib um, detected more than the uh, control arm and also weren't there a lot more a lot more use of anticoagulants as well before we even talk about the results.
1: Sure, because in a screening trial, uh, there's obviously two steps. First, you have to detect the thing that you're looking for and treat it. And then you have to see if that actually matters for clinical outcomes for the whole population, both that part that had the condition detected and also the other part. Um, Well, we did see atrial fibrillation in a lot of cases. A little more than 30% of those with a loop recorder had AFib detected. And anticoagulation initiation was in uh, more than ninety percent of those. So this was a trial where we saw a lot of AFib and it was treated as you no know, clinical AFib with anticoagulation, and then uh, we and then we followed the whole group to see if if this actually mattered for outcomes in this six thousand participant trial.
0: So um, I'm just reading oral anticoagulation was started in. Thirty percent of patients in the ILR group versus only thirteen percent, so more than double the patients hazard ratio two point seven, so two point seven x more patients got anticoagulation. Um, but but what happened?
1: Yeah, uh, when we the primary outcome of this trial was uh, first stroke or systemic embolism, and that was a neutral outcome. The hazard ratio was zero point eight. With a p value of about 0.1, so it was a neutral trial with confidence interval overlapping uh, one, uh, but you couldn't rule out a very important and significant effect of screening for <laughs> atrial So you could you could put on your positive hat and say this was an underpowered trial, because you're not going to see you're not going to see a big impact on hard outcomes in a in a screening trial. You, you're going to see something maybe. But you have to keep in mind that the intervention has to work for the whole study population. And even though we detect AFib in a lot of patients, there's also a lot of patients that did not have AFib, even though they were monitored closely. But I think we can circle back to this concept of how can you how can you measure anything in a screening trial? I think it would be, it'd be good to talk about uh, subclinic later fibrillation uh, a little bit before we go that far, because I started, started talking about how good an idea I thought age fibrillation screening was before we started because, hey, AF is associated with the five times increased risk of stroke. Um, and we know that a lot of people have it. We also know from post-stroke monitoring trials or studies, a little bit smaller studies, that we're also going to see AF in 30% of those patients if we give them a loop recorder. We know from pacemaker cohorts that we're going to see AF. Or subclinical AF in a third of all pacemaker participants, the pacemaker patients, ordinary people with the stroke risk factors and a pacemaker. Um, and then we we start to see sub studies from the Assert, for instance, where we saw that those patients that had an increased risk of stroke were only those with longer AF episodes, lasting at least 24 hours, and a little bit advanced analysis. And we also have these pacemaker cohorts where we can see that if you put the stroke uh, in the middle of of an x-axis and then you you look at the actual AFib episodes in non-anticoagulated patients, you can see that some of them have a little bit of AF before and then they have a stroke, but equally many have AF only after the stroke. And there's no temporal uh, association between the atrial fibrillation episode and the stroke in the majority of these patients. So, my enthusiasm for screening and for treatment of subnegatives started to wane a little bit, and I became a little bit more critical as as the loop study was actually being conducted.
0: Right. So let me push you on the let me push you on the hazard ratio. So the hazard ratio 0.8, 0.80 is a twenty percent reduction in stroke. The lower bound of the conference interval goes zero point six one, so almost a forty percent reduction. Now it does go above one. So the p-value is not significant. But some people would look at this and say, wow, come on, Soren, this is a pretty significant. No, I'm sorry, it's not significant, substantial reduction in in stroke. And maybe if there were more strokes, then we would uh you would have been able to show a significance. What how do you answer that?
1: Well, that, that could very well be true, but if we had a bigger study, then we would probably also see significance from side effects from screening, which in which we had also uh, about twenty percent higher risk of bleeding, for instance, uh, with the with atrial fibrillation detection and treatment.
0: Right. So, so um, I wanted to f- also. I'm glad you mentioned that because you know the the other outcome was major bleeding, right? Because if you start oral anticoagulation in people with AFib. And the downside is major bleeding. And and just reading from the paper, the hazard ratio here was 1.26. So there was a 26% higher rate of major bleeding. Now, that also had conference intervals that um, uh, went below one. So that also wasn't statistically significant. But your point is that we may have reduced stroke, but we also may have increased uh, major bleeding. Exactly. Now, you were talking about, um, you mentioned the ACERT study m- multiple times, and, and I'll link to that. Assert was a study of sub- subclinical AFib. This was published more than 10 years ago in New England Journal, and it showed that in patients who had cardiac devices and short duration AFib, there was a higher incidence of, of stroke. But then subsequent studies from that, and I can link to the Van Gelder study, showed that it required higher duration or longer duration episodes to to associate with stroke. And perhaps one of the snags of AFib screening, and we sort of learned about this in the NOAA trial that was presented recently, is that maybe we need to find higher um, or longer duration episodes of AFib because maybe Short duration AFib is almost not normal, but almost uh, so prevalent that it's not an important predictor.
1: Yes, I I totally agree with this uh, this notion, but I I also want to push back a little bit because we know I don't know. Maybe you can you can redirect me if you want to talk more about mm-hmm. these things that you mentioned already. But
0: uh,
1: but while we were doing the loop study, we started to learn a lot about subclinical AF, also the natural history of subclinical AF. And and, uh, we had these other groups working with the Assert and other studies that taught us a little bit about the association between AF burden or AF comorbidity and stroke risk, not only just AF as a binary entity, yes no. Um, And then we had these trials in the ESAS space that were conducted and they were neutral or negative. And we know from those trials that we put a loop record in all of those patients, you were also going to have seen atrial fibrillation in 30% of those
0: people. Go go slow there. Tell us, uh, give us one or two sentences on the ESIS trials.
1: Yeah, so ESIS, symbolic stroke of unknown source, patient with stroke that it was uh, had routine follow up after the stroke in the stroke unit. And, and it, you weren't able to. Uh, determine the uh, etiology of this stroke. Those patients uh, have been followed with loop record, uh, in, for instance, a study called the Crystal AF, where we know that you're going to see AF and also 30% of those patients. Actually, a lot of data indicates that the age of these patients are the most important uh, predictor of how much AF you're going to see. Regardless, we. This also sparked an interest in just treating those patients with anticoagulants, those with an ESIS, because we know that we're going to see AF in a lot if we follow them closely. And there was one called Natigate and Respec Yep. Big, big pharma company studies, and they, they were both neutral. And I think actually, if, it, if, if that just sums up to, well, you, you, you're not going to see an effect of giving anticoagulation to those patients where you know they have already had the outcome, they have a substantially increased risk of recurrent stroke. These are really the more important patients to try to prevent recurrent stroke. And you know that a lot of them have AFib. It doesn't work to just give them anticoagulation. Then that actually poses an argument that it matters to detect low-burden AFib it matters to find those who do have AFib among those patients and then treat it even though it's uh, maybe a low burden or short episodes. So I thought that was that was just one argument. Maybe it actually does matter to to make this diagnosis of, of atrial fibrillation in this space, even, even for short episodes.
0: The, the navigate-esis and respect-esis, which I'll also link to, these were patients who had a, a stroke of an embolic stroke but there was no source and then they were just treated with anticoagulation versus uh, uh nothing or perhaps aspirin in the other group and there was no no difference and you're saying that many of these patients had afib but afib wasn't a criteria to be in these trials because they had to have stroke of unknown cause right and yeah so they were to...
1: they were required to not have afib and but the control AV... the arm was uh a I believe, but they, they, were, they, they did not have AFib, but we do know that from other studies, including a crystal and also one called the surprise that had they had a loop recorder, we would of course have seen a lot of AFib in those patients okay. as well. So it's just, it just tells us that, well, we shouldn't treat everybody, even though the more relevant ones with anticoagulation, we do have to figure out who of these patients have AF and then treat those based on those ESA studies. So and, and it so, would have been so easy. It would have been so easy if those trials were positive, because then we would say definitely this is not about the rhythm. The rhythm doesn't matter. It's only about risk factors. You have to have the right risk factors. Doesn't matter if it's science or atrial fibrillation. Just have to treat those, for instance, with stroke of unknown source. But this is not the case. We're still in a world where probably this diagnosis of atrial fibrillation is sometimes. Rather important for decision making.
0: But also, I mean, I mean, don't you think a major trial that really informs this is NOAA, right? NOAA was NOAA was oral anticoagulation in patients with short duration AFib versus uh, placebo. And even in patients with short duration AFib and risk factors, anticoagulation didn't make a difference. And this this trial was enriched for patients who had afib and yet it it, it didn't work um it was terminated early for for futility and 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 bleeding harm so um we're going to have another one at aha next month called artesia but i mean i guess what you're getting at is we need to probably enrich the population that we're screening or treating or finding afib in because just finding short duration afib alone is not enough
1: yeah we're going to have to enrich the population in terms of what risk factors they have and what risk of side effects for dental the coagulation they would have. So we have to enrich the population, but we probably also have to choose the right uh, amount of monitoring for age population and overlook, so to speak, overlook uh, the right episodes in the right patients. We don't want to, we don't want to detect very short episodes. I don't think at this moment we do have any strong arguments that very short uh, uh, duration of AF should, should, uh, should indicate any treatment. Um,
0: this has strong... also Also... Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. All, all, yeah, but just,
1: again, also based on this uh, NOAA trial that you just mentioned, where we tried, uh, whether investigators tried it with edoxaban for patients who did have pacemaker-detected subclinical AFib and risk factors.
0: Yeah and uh, I mean this really has implications for the Apple Watch community and the smartwatch community right because these 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 devices are going to be very good at picking up short short duration afib. All right, you have two um you have two sub papers from loop that are interesting. Um one uh using using a biomarker for heart failure uh and another looking at the type of stroke and and how um Previous stroke may uh, may influence uh, screening decisions. Do you want to just tell us about those two, and I, I can I can link to them as well.
1: Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's let's dive into this a little bit because I I, I agree with you. I'm also critical towards screening for atrial regulation as a concept at the moment. Uh, I believe that everything that we learned about AFIB as you know increasing risk of stroke fivefold is only something that was relevant back in the day where it was detected when it was almost uh, permanent. Um, this is not something that fits in the modern world. So today we have to figure out who actually benefits from all this age population screening that is occurring, whether we want it or not. So we, we um, sampled ProBNP, NT ProBNP, in all of the participants in the LOOP trial to see if that could be something that could tell us if patients will actually benefit from being screened and then treated. So that was something that we published in Circulation uh, at ESC last year, uh, 2022. And uh, so probin-P is, of course, a heart failure marker. But I think it's actually a better, even better uh, marker for Stroke risk and atrial fibrillation, and when you look at, at this proBNP in the loop trial, you can see that proBNP doesn't really separate out. It doesn't really do a lot to separate those who are diagnosed with AFib from those who are, aren't. But it really does separate out those who have a big or uh, higher risk of bad outcomes, and even more importantly, it separates out those who actually have benefit from being diagnosed and then treated for atrial fibrillation. So, based on this post hoc analysis, you can look at the two halves of the loop study population. And had we only had we only screened those who had a P above median, we would have we would have uh, uh, you know done a lot to to prevent stroke with a with a hazard ratio of of about uh, 0.6. And there's, that is a little bit promising because then we could say, okay, people with a higher probing P should probably have a, have a higher likelihood of actually benefiting from screening. And those with a Low probing P probably shouldn't worry about screening. Even if they had AF, it wouldn't matter because it would it would be more physiolo- physiological finding in that case and, and less about actual outcomes. So uh, this is something that I, I, I would like to replicate in a, in a subsequent analysis and in, uh, in a trial from the bottom up to see if we can, you know, have uh, done something important.
0: It, yeah, so the it's kind of plausible too, isn't it, right? Because the BNP uh, that's above median is going to pick patients that have a higher left atrial pressure. Uh, BNP is sort of a marker for, I mean, really simplistically, excess fluid or excess left atrial pressure that may be seen in heart failure. Um, kidney failure whatever in other words you're just picking higher risk patients and when you pick higher risk patients uh, it did seem like the hazard ratio for stroke reduction was was significant so maybe if you enriched the trial with patients uh, that had these higher risk as manifest by the bmp that you might be more beneficial exactly that is a nice
1: hypothesis Right, and that's, that's where we are. It's it's only a hypothesis at the moment, and I'd like just to mention that the the Swedish group working with a randomized control trial using BNP as a sort of a selection criteria to to enter the more more uh, advanced type of screening Strokes up too.
0: Yeah, we should do just a quick sidebar because I really love that comment because you're not making a causal inference from a sub. Subgroup analysis, a post hoc subgroup analysis. You're saying that this finding is sort of a, a stimulus to do further further work, rather than to jump to causation from a post hoc subgroup analysis. Yeah, and I can explain to you and
1: and the listeners uh, why I'm saying this because we we did a lot of post hoc analyses in the dupe study. We had a brilliant uh, PhD student who is really skilled with st- stats and and and. You know, we have a very nice collaboration. And he published also the same year a post hoc analysis where you could see that if we just group by comorbidity, you can see a very strong effect of screening in those without established cardiovascular disease at baseline and no effect whatsoever in those with cardiovascular disease at baseline, which is pretty much the opposite of what you would. Think. so you have to be really really careful about these post hoc analyses and have to think about hypothesis and, and you know have a have a good discussion of why do you uh, think things are as they are but uh P looks promising I think but we really aren't there yet we have to do a lot more to uh, to establish who actually benefits from screening
0: would you please send me send me the link of the of your colleague's paper because I'll I'll um I'll, I'll link to that too that's a really nice story actually uh it reminds yeah. me of it reminds me of the Richard Pito story right where they looked at Isis 2 and analyzed subgroups by by horoscope and found a, a positive finding so I guess the point is that you can find if you do a lot of subgroup analysis you can find just by chance alone uh, uh associations that aren't real
1: yeah. Okay, And then we can go on to, to the paper you mentioned in German Neurology where we looked at the types of stroke in this whole loop study and, and also looked at if prior stroke at baseline had any impact. And of course, the background for that is that we should expect that those with a prior stroke had a much more relevance for exclamation screening and also a higher risk of recurrent stroke. And, right. and so so this,
0: is, this is just to clarify, this is from the loop, right? So in the loop, there were patients enrolled that had had a, a prior stroke. And so you were looking at that subgroup of patients who should be higher risk. And if a patient had a prior stroke, they should benefit more from picking up atrial fibrillation. Exactly. Okay, tell us. So,
1: yeah, so this was just a, stu- uh, a sub-study where we first thing we utilized that loop study is actually a huge study for stroke because we have 315 strokes in a randomized trial. So that is a very high number with adjudicated strokes. And we, we know a lot, this is not a pragmatic trial. We, all outcomes are adjudicated. We know a lot about these patients. Um, so when we look at those... Uh, 315 strokes that we have. We could see that, for instance, just looking at the TOAST criteria, which are the tool that the neurologists use to determine the source of the stroke, cardioembolism is really rare, even despite a lot of patients have a loop recorder. And that's, we should think that sometimes it could be classified as cardioembolism because you have a loop recorder and not have AF before the stroke occurred. But when we look at these patients, uh small basal disease is really the more prevalent type of stroke could I, Can i just can i yeah. just
0: stop you there that's a really important point for the listeners that when yeah. when you know soren's got this study with uh hundreds of strokes and these are patients with loop recorders and the type of stroke that you would get from uh, atrial fibrillation is a really small number the most common kind of stroke in patients uh, in this study, was actually small vessel or large artery uh, large artery um, uh, disease that are really probably not AFib related. So this is a, this really gets to the whole issue of competing causes of stroke because AFib increases the risk of stroke, but it's not uh, uh, it's not the only kind of stroke that patients can get. So this is on Figure three um, in that paper, and it's really an important figure, I think.
1: And then we moved from there to, to look at the severity of the strokes. And we, we had also a substantial number of, of what neurologists call a severe stroke based on how much disability you, you get from having the stroke. And then we looked at if those that were screened were more protected from that outcome. And we, we sort of found the same signal as in the main, uh, looking at the main outcome, that it was it was neutral with very wide confidence intervals. Uh, we couldn't really say that we prevented severe strokes at all. And then we looked at the subgroups. We looked at a lot of stuff in this paper, but, but just talking about uh, those with a stroke at baseline, prior stroke, and those without. Then we had 1,000 participants with a prior stroke at baseline and, and, uh, and uh, 5,000 without, but those 1,000 Participants with a prior stroke, also randomized to loop recorder or usual care. That's actually the biggest post-stroke monitoring s- trial in the world, I believe, with with a sort of a randomized to actually screening for and treating H fibrillation after the stroke. And looking at that group, we could see no effect from being screened and treated if its fibrillation occurred. We could see that this group with a prior stroke had a much higher rate of recurrent stroke, but they did not upheld the signal that we saw in the main trial for stroke prevention. They The, the curves were just totally superimposed. We didn't see that these patients were benefited from, from being screened. Also when we looked only at, at the, the more severe strokes. Oppositely, we saw that we could uh, in those without a prior stroke, then we could see a significant defect of of severe stroke following screening versus usual care. So that is just totally the same again, that those with less competing risk factors could probably or could maybe have an effect of screening, but those where we actually thought that we should screen and those that we are actually screening today in the clinic, uh, to me, appear as, as they are the ones that have least benefit because they have competing risk factors. They have a higher risk at baseline, but it's so so hard to to mitigate that risk with all of the interventions that we do. So probably those patients with a stroke, we should start worrying about all the other risk factors that they have than than AFib, worry about their hypertension or diabetes that may be uh, not well managed and all those things in those patients.
0: I think this is such a remarkable finding. So as figure four in this paper that I'll link to, if patients had a prior stroke, which, you know, remember these patients don't have AFib. They just, their patients enrolled in the loop study. They don't have AFib, but you you took patients who had prior stroke. And if they were randomized to screening, uh, uh, to the screening group, it didn't make a difference. Uh, the, The curves are the same, but in patients who had no prior stroke, who probably are lower risk uh then screening looked like it, it it did have a statistically significant benefit and occurs separate over time which is what you'd expect and so I'm I'm so interested in you know competing risks and I and I guess that um you know there's the risk of the primary outcome which is stroke and there's the risk of the competing outcomes and uh this this is I think such an such an interesting and important finding and I guess just Going further, and I think you mentioned this, is that right now, inpatients who have stroke on our service, they all get loop recorders, screen for AFib, screen for AFib. And it looks like at least in this randomized controlled trial, the group that benefited more from screening were those that had no prior stroke. Is that about right?
1: That's about right but of course we have to be equally uh, careful about you know the negative findings as well as the positive findings. but uh, this is I agree this is very interesting. this is uh, something we should think about when we you know do something for which we don't really have the evidence for for instance in planning a loop recorder in anybody. Uh, so I think this is something that should be investigated more and I, I want to do a study where we randomize patients to, to having a loop recorder. And then we don't actually treat what's on the loop recorder unless it's something that is, uh, you know, clinical AFib that would also have been diagnosed without the loop recorder. Uh, and then uh, you, uh, an active arm where, where we would treat everything. Uh, so this is something that I think we could do ethically based on the loop study post-Hog uh, analysis and also on the NOAA study that you mentioned where where we saw that loop burn AFib doesn't seem to coagulation and pacemaker patients with a lot of risk factors. but I, we have a lot of stuff we want to do following the loop study of course so this is just one of the ideas.
0: All right, excellent now uh, um, uh, we're almost done. you gave us a talk in in Norway um, about ab- about this and we mentioned we mentioned a lot of this. Uh, is there any closing comments um, that you would offer?
1: Then that would be that, you know, in anything in medicine, I, this is also about ICD treatment uh, to reduce sudden cardiac death uh, in a world where heart failure therapy is changing a lot. And in anything cardiology, I think we have to think about if what we know sort of pertains to the clinical conditions that we see today or those that we saw maybe many, many years ago. This is very relevant for AFib. I think that AFib today is something different than it was before. And um, I think we sort of have to relearn the pathophysiology of atrial fibrillation. We have to sort of redefine what it is. We have to figure out what is AF burden and and how to even measure it. Um, This is something that we we can't do today or tomorrow. This is uh, something we have to work on for a long time. And for AFIB screening, I think we I think we have a lot of arguments that it could be important. We just don't have the proof yet. Maybe the answer will actually be a smartwatch. Oh my god! Because you're not, not going to see these super short episodes <laughs> on a smartwatch. Uh, maybe you you will only see something if it uh, sort of persists a whole day or at least uh, many hours. So um, I think we we have to sort of be humble and and and. Think about everything and and the limitations of of uh, our knowledge at the moment.
0: Excellent. I do think I totally agree that that uh, many many conditions are changing. In, in modern therapy and that trials, many trials have an expiration date. But AFib especially is changing in technology. The ability to pick these things up is really changing, and I I do agree. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you're you're working on this and also glad that you took the time to talk with us. And I, I know that our listeners are going to love this content. So Soren, thank you very much for for being on. and we'll we'll surely talk again. Thank you very much and looking forward to it. All right.